0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we come back to uh, look again at a passage we started looking at a couple weeks ago. If you are a uh, long-distance athlete, you are no doubt familiar with the concept of hitting the wall, or in French, avoir un coup de bar, uh, the hitting of the bar, or in German, man mit dem Hammer being hit with the hand, the man with the hammer, all of it sort of describing that point in the race where your body suddenly begins to just not respond, where fatigue uh, comes in and no matter how hard you try, it seems impossible to take the next step, the next pedal, the next stroke, or whatever it might be. Your legs feel like they are bolted to the floor, or to the pavement, we might say, uh, every step becomes increasingly difficult. Your body just will not respond to your mind. It's kind of an apt analogy, really, for what takes place spiritually in some cases where you are trying to share spiritual truth with people, and uh, they just won't respond. Every conversation seems more difficult Every, uh, every utterance, uh, just more resistance. It seems like you're slogging in the mud. You can't make any progress. It's almost like you've hit a wall. You've been hit with the bar. Well, this is kind of where Jesus finds himself in this passage that we're looking at. He's hit a wall, if you will. He's hit a patch of spiritual resistance that is uh, exploding or sort of manifesting itself in a way that he's not really experienced up to this point in his ministry. It's a situation that we uh, started to look at, uh, as I said a couple weeks ago, sort of elicited by another one of his uh, healings. In this situation, casting out a a man who was mute uh, uh, mute and blind because of a demon. And it was in this miracle that you see a divergence of two responses, one of them by the crowds, uh, that of amazement, and the other by the religious establishment, who just harden themselves even more to the truth of the gospel. You may remember in verse 22, it says, "...a demon-oppressed man was, uh, who was blind and mute was brought to him, and, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed." And said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul... By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. And if by the Spirit, But if by the Spirit of God, uh, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Here we see the response of these different people, the amazement of the crowds, the speculation, that this might very well be the son of David, the true Messiah. They saw the power, they saw the healing, they saw the proofs. They saw all of this unmistakable evidence of his authority, and they begin to draw what should be the obvious conclusions. But we're told, which is the central point of this whole episode, that the Pharisees here in the crowds And hearing them beginning to make these kinds of speculations, accused Jesus of doing all this by the power of Satan. As I said, this is sort of the zenith of rejection on the part of Israel. In fact, it's from this point forward that Jesus begins to sort of uh, uh, plunge further and further into unpopularity and ultimately ending with his crucifixion. But up to this point, Jesus has given no reason for rejection. In fact, he's given them every reason to believe. He's lived righteously before them. He has promoted and upheld righteousness for other people. He's encouraged people to pray. He's went out and he's prayed himself by example. He's called people to holiness. He's called them to peacefulness. He's taught them the word of God and told them to cling to God's word. He has helped the weak, he's fed the hungry, he's shown mercy to everyone who comes to him, he's healed the sick, he's freed those who are oppressed by demons, he's done everything that you might expect a man of God to do. He's given them every reason to believe, every evidence that should have led them to accept the fact that not only is his gospel true, but he is indeed the true Messiah, But at this point, they haven't accepted him. Could be any number of reasons. It might just be just a desire to hold on to their power. They were the religious leaders. They didn't want to concede that to some new guy on the block. They came with all kinds of privileges that they no doubt enjoyed for themselves. It could just be the passing pleasures of sin. They just just had hidden lives that they didn't want to be exposed. They had certain things that they wanted to engage in. They wanted to keep engaging in, and they didn't want their hypocrisy brought out. It could just simply be foolishness. They didn't really see the pathway that they were on for its destructiveness. They didn't see where it was going. They didn't want to admit that. Or it could just be pride. They just didn't simply, they simply did not want to humble themselves and acknowledge that the things they had held to, the things they had believed, the things they had taught and called other people to were false. I mean, it could be any number of reasons, but whatever it is, they are unwilling to accept Christ. Or to say the other way, they are utterly rejecting Him. These are hardened hearts. They're hardened. Not for lack of evidence, not for lack of proof. They had all the same proofs and all the same evidence that everyone else had. In fact, they had just watched an unmistakable supernatural miracle. The issue was not a lack of information or a lack of reason. The issue was simply a stubborn refusal to yield to the truth of God. Not only that, they weren't satisfied just to suppress the truth in their own hearts, they decided they would pervert it for others. They were going to claim that the good Jesus was doing was, in fact, the work of Satan. They were going to say that he's not from heaven, he's from hell. That he's not promoting light, he's promoting darkness. They were going to be like the Old Testament saints when God declared in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Or like the proverb in Proverbs 17.15, the one who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. These are abominable men who are rejecting Christ needlessly. They were, in fact, the ones that Jesus says later are blind guides of the blind. They themselves were blind and they wanted to blind other people around them. Their rejection of the truth was not just for themselves, they began to attack what is good. To call it evil to undermine people's confidence in this truth. Well, they may have been able to bully and intimidate the people of Israel for years, but Jesus isn't having it. He knows that their so called arguments are not arguments at all, they're just excuses excuses, trying to cover up their willful rejection of the truth. And so he begins to give them a series of reasons, if you will, a series of calls to drop their opposition to the truth and to acknowledge his authority as the Savior of Israel. And he begins, you may remember in verse 25, calling them to drop their opposition because their rejection of the truth is illogical. It's illogical. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand, he says? Satan would never do such a thing. He wouldn't energize and empower someone to to destroy his own kingdom. That would make absolutely no sense. And as a matter of fact, if what Jesus is doing is attacking the kingdom of Satan, then why try to stop him? Just let him go about his way. I mean, he's going to do all your work for you, right? He's going to completely destroy Satan's kingdom. Satan is going to destroy himself. That doesn't make any sense. None of it makes sense. Their objection doesn't make sense. What they're saying doesn't make sense. Their argument is not an argument. It's an excuse. An excuse to just simply give them cover for resisting the truth. And so he calls them out on it. They're willful Resistance is not logical. Not only that, in verse 27, it's not consistent. Their rejection of the truth is inconsistent. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? I mean, they had exorcists among them. They had people from within their own ranks, their own society, their own disciples, if you will, who also performed exorcisms. Were they applying the same kind of reasoning, the same kind of logic to those guys as well? Are they going to apply the same standard? Of course not. Because it's not, a, it's not exorcisms they're objecting to, it's Jesus they're objecting to. It's not the deeds, it's the messenger. And they weren't going to do that like every other unbeliever doesn't want to do that. They are inconsistent. They are duplicitous. They call out the what they consider to be the uh, assumptions or presuppositions in Christian thought without ever taking thought or consideration of their own. They talk about the uh, incapabilities of Christians to know everything without recognizing that they themselves also don't know anything. All of these sort of internal inconsistencies, they don't want to face them because they're really, at the end of the day, they're not arguments. They're just excuses. And they don't want to be held accountable to the truth. So so Jesus is telling them they need to drop their opposition because it's inconsistent, it's illogical, and thirdly, it's implausible. He says, how could someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed he could plunder his house. How can you explain this power? I mean, you see what I'm doing. You, you explain it. I mean, who who has the power to disarm Satan, to overpower him, to cast out demons, to call people to Repentance and faith to call them out of false religions, totally routing Satan at every turn, destroying his kingdom at every turn. Who has the power to do that? Only one, God himself. God himself. Jesus had demonstrated sufficiently the kind of power that should have led them, obviously, to one conclusion. That he alone... Apart from any other man, apart from anyone who ever walked on the face of the earth, he alone had the kind of authority over Satan and Satan's kingdom that pointed to one obvious conclusion that he is God. So he's telling him, drop all this silly game of resistance what you're saying is illogical what you're saying is inconsistent what you're saying is implausible and fourthly where their rejection of the truth they need to drop it because it is unmistakable it can't be hidden they can't pretend that this is what he says in verse 30 whoever's not with me is against me whoever does not gather with me scatters He's calling them out because they have been ones who have followed him along, who have gone out, listened to his preaching, who have, you might say, amused him to some extent or another. They had uh, uh, pretended to be maybe curious or interested or whatever, but Jesus is saying you cannot claim any longer to be some sort of neutral party because you're not because there is not. Jesus does not allow for it. There is no neutral ground. You are either with Christ in, in the sense that you acknowledge Him as the Lord and Savior and you are participating in the work of calling people to believe Him or you are against Him in that you are doing whatever you can to reject the truth, to suppress the truth, to falsify the truth, to corrupt the truth. Now, all of this is true. All of this is obviously true because of the exclusive claim that Jesus makes for Himself. He claims to be none other than the strong man, the Son of God. He claims uh, to be none other than God Himself, the One who is more powerful than Satan, the One who has authority over His kingdom. And so you either accept what He claims and yield your life to Him, or you deny what he claims and with the implications of that denial. Or in the classic apologetic sense, you either accept him as Lord or you declare him to be a liar. There is no middle ground. No, no, no person could hear the words of Christ and stand back and say, Well, you know, I don't really know what I think about that. No, he's either lying or he's telling the truth. And if he's telling the truth, it has profound implications. If he's lying, it has profound implications. These are the guys who, as I said, had hidden this sort of animosity against Christ for what is now a couple of years, the superficial uh, interest that he might have shown, the superficial curiosity they might have shown, the tolerance to walk around and hear him preach from time to time uh, might have all sort of been hidden under the surface but now now what they're articulating with such force coming out stating explicitly jesus is saying has always been there implicitly it's always been there your continued resistance has always demonstrated your hardness of heart this didn't come out of nowhere. It's always been there inside. You have not been the friend of God. You've been the enemy of God. You have not been the uh, entertainer of God. You have been the skeptic of God. You've been the accuser. So he's just pointing out that while they have not been willing to voice us in the past, they have always been his enemies. There's no neutral ground. It doesn't matter what your label is. You can call yourself an agnostic. You can call yourself a seeker. You can call yourself whatever you want. You can put whatever label across the top of your, of your life, if you will, whatever ideology or philosophy or worldview or culture, subculture. You can identify with all these groups. You, you can do whatever you want, but there's only, only two groups of people according to Christ. No middle position. This is his simple view of the world. With all of its pluralism, with all of its multiculturalism, with all of its worldviews and diversity, it's basically divided into two groups. Those who are with Christ and those who are against him. Those who are gathering and those who are scattering. Scattering. As I said, there's no room for the agnostic, no room for the person who claims they haven't made up their mind, no kind of neutrality here. It doesn't exist. You're either accepting of what he says or you're opposed to what he says. You're either making the claim that he's Lord or that he's a liar. So their objections, they can't hide them anymore. They can't pretend anymore. What they're saying is illogical. It is inconsistent. It is implausible. It's unmistakable. And finally, in verse 31, it's unforgivable. It's unforgivable. You see him draw the conclusion, therefore. This is where it all leads, therefore. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. This is, this is unforgivable hardness of heart, unforgivable rejection, he says which is really a remarkable statement when you think about the emphasis of Scripture on the inexhaustible grace of God, the inexhaustible forgiveness of God. Over and over again, this is what you hear. Oh, Lord, you are good and forgiving, Psalm 86 says, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Psalm 130, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness of sins. So the overwhelming message of Scripture over and over and over again is that the Lord is eager to forgive. He's ready to forgive. He always forgives all those who come to Him, He forgives them. And it doesn't matter what your sins are, what your. Unrighteousness, your unlawlessness. You might be an idolater or a brawler, even a murderer, a thief, a liar, envious, greedy, covetous, revilers, swindlers, adulterers, homosexuals, drunkards. It doesn't matter. The Lord's message is the same to all the, all the people. Come to me. I am eager to forgive. I forgive all iniquity, all sin. Even Jesus, right here in Matthew chapter 12, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. You see, it doesn't matter what you've done. You might imagine you're the worst person in the world. It doesn't matter what you've done. The Lord's saying every sin, every evil is forgivable. All those who come to the Lord find His grace Abundant to wipe away their guilt. Amazingly, he says whoever even speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. I mean, you can blaspheme the Son of Man. Uh, that basically means to defame his character, to, to go after his reputation, to speak evil, to call him a liar. To call him someone who's not true, to mock him even. He says, God's even ready to forgive that. That was the case with so many people, especially in Jesus' humanity. Even his own disciples didn't understand him sometimes. Even they sometimes questioned his ideas. They questioned his wisdom. They questioned his plan. They rebuked him, his own disciples. All of this probably a result of his... Humility, when He first came, He didn't come arriving clothed in the full majesty of His glory. He, uh, wrote, he came not as a powerful king. He clothed Himself as a servant. He humbled Himself, which meant He lived His life in fatigue and hunger and poverty and weakness and there are lots of people who misjudged all of that, uh, all all that Jesus did in His humanness and couldn't see His true identity. Paul even talks about a time in his own life when he used to judge Jesus, he says, according to the flesh, meaning according to human perspectives, worldly perspectives, based on external standards. Things like power and worldly prestige and outward accomplishments, human standards. I used to I used to look at Jesus and I used to think about him the same way I think about other uh, leaders of the world, other thinkers of the world. I used to evaluate him. Uh, there are influencers. There are famous people. There are wealthy people. There are powerful people. I give my ear to them. I give my mind to them. I give my heart to them. I evaluate them on human standards. And when I looked at Jesus, I wasn't impressed. I judged him on uh, according to, to the flesh, he says. I, I used to be there. And when he made that judgment, his judgment was that Jesus was false. In fact, in Acts 26, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem... I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even in foreign cities. Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says, Formerly I was a blasphemer. Persecutor, insolent opponent. His outward evaluation, his human evaluation of Jesus based on worldly standards, setting Jesus aside everybody else, he concluded he wasn't impressed. He wasn't impressed. He was an insolent, an arrogant a proud opponent of Jesus. He denied Him. He used wicked and abusive and false language to attack Him. He spoke disrespectfully of Jesus. He spoke spitefully of Christians. He even tried to convince other people to do the same, to blaspheme Jesus. But Paul says in that same verse, 1 Timothy 1, 13, But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I received mercy, he says, because what I was doing, I was doing ignorantly. Not meaning that he didn't know anything about Jesus Christ. He knew a great deal about Jesus Christ. In fact, he was there in Acts chapter 7 on the day of Stephen's great sermon, whenever P- Stephen was standing up and proclaiming who Christ is. Paul was there, you remember, and the people laid their feet, uh, their, their coats at the feet of Paul before they went out and stoned Stephen. I mean, he went out and he drugged people out of the synagogues and tried to get them to renounce the faith. He no doubt heard people over and over and over again refusing to do that. That's why he put them to death. He would have heard their testimony. He would have heard their their words about Christ. It's not as if he didn't know anything about Christ or he had never heard anything about Christ. When he's talking about ignorance, what he's saying is, I didn't understand the true nature of the Lord. I thought I was doing the right thing. In my own mind, I had reasoned that what I was doing was the right thing. I was trying to eliminate a dangerous sect, I was trying to shut down some foolish thought. I was ignorant in what I was doing. But all that was forgiven, Paul says, because of God's mercy. He goes on in verse 14, "...the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus." This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's not making any excuses. He knows his attitude was awful. His words were awful. His blasphemies were awful. He spoke against Christ. He spoke against Christians. He knew all of that did not deserve God's grace. But he also knew that it wasn't beyond God's grace. And God's grace overflowed to him. This is what Jesus means when he says, the one who blasphemes the Son of Man will be forgiven. The person The person who's speaking and he's evaluating Jesus on these human terms. The person who's evaluating Jesus on these worldly terms. He's evaluating Jesus according to the flesh like any other man. Based on that kind of superficial view. You reject Christ. Jesus says even that will be forgiven. But what will not be forgiven... What will not be pardoned is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the unpardonable, the unforgivable sin. You say, well, what's that? I can tell you what it's not. I was a young man, maybe 22 years old, and been called out to preach at some country church in Alabama, and so showed up dutifully for the Sunday school hour to listen in before I preached, and the deacon was handling the duties those days, and he flips open to his Bible, obviously had done no preparation for that morning, reads this verse, kind of stumbles over his words, well, uh, you know, I'm not really sure, but I, I mean, this is kind of like where, you know, if God tells me something and I tell it to you, and you don't listen to me, that's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That is not, okay, just... If someone comes and says, God told me to tell you, you are in safe territory, okay? You don't need to worry about that as the unpardonable sin. What this is, is the willful rejection in your heart when God has clearly revealed the person of Christ. The willful rejection in your heart when God has clearly revealed to you the person of Christ. See, the Bible indicates that there's a point for many people where they reach fullness, full awareness of Christ, a clear understanding of Christ, and they still reject him. They know who he is. They understand his power. They know his resurrection. They see his work but they are simply unwilling to give up their sin. It's unpardonable. This is what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, refusing to yield to the truth of the gospel with the full awareness of what you're doing. The Bible says there are people who come so close they can almost visibly see, taste, touch the realities of the gospel. Hebrews 6 describes this kind of a person. Over there, it says, uh, the writer says, he says, It is impossible in the case of the one who was once enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, the powers of the age to come, and then having fallen away. To restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. This is the person who's been enlightened. That is to say, the light has shined in their darkened understanding, the light has shined. The illuminating work of the gospel has come in. Knowledge and truth has come in. And he elaborates on this, describing it as having tasted the heaven, heavenly gift, meaning that there was there was a meaningful experience related to this presentation of the gospel. They didn't fully consume it, but they tasted it. There was a partial, an initial taste the start of the meal a sense of what the full feast could be like he even says here remarkably they shared in the holy spirit we well, you know that, that word "share" it, it basically is a word for an associate someone who is an associate in an enterprise or a project we understand the difference between a, an associate and a equity partner when it comes to a law firm or an architecture firm or a construction company or or some endeavor like that you have you have partners and you have associates you have those who are owners of the company the equity partners they are bought in if you will and then you have those who simply work for the company they are associates And on a day-to-day basis, the two people might do very similar work. Their activity might look very much the same. They're sitting at the same computers or dealing with the same clients, all that other stuff. And if the organization does well, both of them benefit to some extent from that that, uh, success. But their relationship to the company is very different. One of them is just an associate. One of them can walk away at any moment. The other is bought in. He's an equity partner. He couldn't walk away if he wanted to. It's going to go with him legally. It's going to go with him wherever he goes. And and the writer is saying that these are the people who had gotten very close. They were associated with the Holy Spirit. They got to see the benefits of His blessings. They probably experienced many of those because they were around Spirit-filled people. So it brought in their life all kinds of peace. It brought in their life all kinds of stability. It brought in their life all kinds of blessing. But they never fully bought in. They never fully bought in. He goes on and illustrates this with a little picture in verse 7 about land. He says, The land that's drunk in the rain that falls on it often produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it's cultivated and receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Uh, To be clear, this is not a field that received the rains and produced life and vegetation and then lost it. These are two different fields. One of them received the rain and brought the vegetation and brought the life. That's the true believer. The other is a field that received the rain And all it could produce was thorns and thistles. It wasn't a field that lost its fruit. It was a field that never had it. It had all the blessings of the Spirit and the light... The goodness, as he says in verse 5, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They had demonstrated to them the power of the gospel, if not in their own heart, in the life of people around them. They saw the, 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 the blessings, they saw the work of the Lord. It was evident in the relationships of those who've walked with the Lord and implemented his word in their life. All of that, he says, was before them. It rained down on them. They've been shown the truth, and yet still they bring forth what? Thorns and thistles. Cursed ground. What he's saying is that there's a spiritual condition where people reach where it's impossible. You can water them all day long, it's impossible. It's impossible to lead them back to repentance. You could flood their field with the truth of God. It's not going to turn them around. They've already become cursed. They're already destined to be burned. You see, the person who turns their back on all that they have seen of the goodness of the realities of Christ... And chooses sin. The writer says in effect they're re-crucifying Christ. They're putting Him to open shame. They're saying. If not with their lips. With their life. They're saying that the passing pleasures of sin. Are worth far more. Than the wisdom. Of Christ. The love of Of Christ, the forgiveness and grace of Christ. They're basically taking their place with those who crucified Christ and say, I agree with that. That kind of action, he says. That kind of declaration by your actions, if not by your words, it says, I think what the world has to offer is better than what Christ has to offer. It mocks the Savior. It puts Jesus to public shame and it's all the worse because it comes from someone who's already tasted. They've already seen up close the powers of the age to come. This is what Jesus is describing in Matthew chapter 12. Those Pharisees had every reason to believe. Those religious leaders, they had sufficiently been exposed to the truth. They had witnessed the blessings of God in the life of other people. They had seen God at work among the demon-possessed and the sick. They had seen God at work among the downtrodden and the poor. They had seen God at work among those who were repenting and coming out of their sin. They had a clear indication of how God was redeeming lives out of brokenness and bringing them back to healing and wholeness. They couldn't, as a matter of fact, at this point, they couldn't even deny the power. All they could do was try to ascribe to it some sort of corrupt motive or some sort of corrupt force. All they could do at this point was slander it. Because it was obvious, abundantly obvious, that they were surrounded by by all kinds of evidence of the work of Christ. This was willful rejection of Christ for the sake of embracing sin. And Jesus says, anything can be forgiven. Everything can be forgiven. But that kind of rejection of the Holy Spirit it's unfortunate It will not be forgiven. It will lead from one miserable experience to the next and ultimately to judgment. You know, we can't know when someone reaches that point, you and I. We don't see people's heart and mind. We don't know how hardened they are. If we would have met Paul on the road to Damascus, we would have assumed that he had probably already gotten there. He was a blasphemer, an insolent person. We see it all the time. God turned this murderous man around. He knew that no one was ever going to be able to undo the lives that he took. No one's ever going to be able to bring those people back in his lifetime. He knew that his deeds were atrocious. You would have met him, you would have assumed he'd already passed 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 the veil. We don't know when people have gone this far rejecting Christ and also rejecting the Holy Spirit we don't know if they're still just evaluating Christ on human standards evaluating Him according to the flesh thinking about Him the way that they think about any other human being and kind of just judging Him based on that. They don't, we don't know if they're just looking at Christ and His humility and thinking, you know what, uh, there are other influencers, there are other thinkers who had a lot more impressive life. We don't know when we're talking to anybody whether they have reached this point. And so we keep pleading every sin can be forgiven every sin every sin can be forgiven even blaspheming the son of man can be forgiven if you'll come and humble yourself and recognize your willful rejection thus far if you'll come and recognize that your sin is making you more and more Miserable, more and more hardened, more and more defiant, more and more prideful. But if you'll come to the Lord, He forgives. He restores, He renews. And would you come before it's too late? Lord, we need this Word. We know we need it because You gave it to us in Your Word multiple times with this warning we pray that we therefore would not lose heart but as we continue to pray and plead with people that your grace would overflow to them that it would be abundant to them that they would drop their pretense, their illogical and inconsistent and implausible excuses, and that they would come to Christ. We pray, Father, for your power to do this. We know that you forgive. We know that you call, and we know that you work. I pray for those who have tasted already the goodness of the Word of God and the heavenly gift that they would no longer just associate, but they would buy in and finally turn away from their sin and come to the Savior. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.